Brethren, would you take your copy of the Scriptures and turn with me to Psalm 14. Psalm 14. We continue to make our way through Book 1 of the Psalms, uh, which is mainly focused on the conflict that believers face in this world. And this psalm will bring out the nature of that conflict. Let's turn and ask our God to help us understand His Word. Heavenly Father, we come as Your people to hear from You. And we pray that Your Word would instruct us. We pray that You would give us an understanding of ourselves, of who You are, of the power of Your grace to overcome sin. And we pray that You would press to our hearts the hope that You give us. And we pray this through Jesus our Savior. Amen. Psalm 14, brethren, hear now the Word of God. To the choir master of David, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Have they no knowledge, all the evildoers who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? There they are in great terror, for God is with the generation of the righteous. You would shame the plans of the poor, but the Lord is His refuge. Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion when the Lord restores the fortunes of His people. Let Jacob rejoice. Let Israel be glad. Thus far, God's Word, and may He bless His Word to our hearts. On the previous psalm, we were with David in the doldrums. David was experiencing a crisis of mercy delayed distance from God, and a deadly foe, most likely Saul, coming after him. It was an individual lament for God to intervene, to take action. And ultimately, we saw that David moved from confusion to confidence as the eye turned from his own tumultuous emotions in a mere earthly scene to beholding the unchangeable love of the covenant God. Well, in this next psalm, our text, the individual lament or struggle becomes a communal struggle. This is a lament from the community of God's people who face evil everywhere. In fact, the psalm will show us the evil even within the very people of God. David is going to paint for us a very dark picture of the condition of the children of men, that is, the sons of Adam. Natively, there is something terribly wrong with them all. And while you have to understand, there are no philosophical atheists in Israel, and probably not even any philosophical atheists among the polytheist pagans surrounding Israel, there is yet a heart commitment embrace that evidences true folly a godless mindset, both within Israel and without. So David addresses here the struggle of facing the fool, 
or even a multitude of fools who are causing God's people distress. We'll see in this psalm a distinction that the Psalter stated at the very beginning and it goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15. There are two kinds of people. The righteous and the wicked. Satan's seed and the seed of the woman. And these seeds are locked in conflict. And yet as that conflict rages, this lament will turn ultimately to the hope of an assaulted people. An ultimate restoration, which is nothing less than deliverance from the fool. Well, let's see five things as we make our way through our passage. First, I want you to note with me man's deliberation. Man's deliberation there in verse 1. David starts with the inward musings of depraved man. It's a famous declaration. You probably have it stuck in your mind already. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. Now David here, by the enlightening power of the Holy Spirit, is giving us a window into corrupt man. Because it's only God Himself who can see to the heart or hear the internal thoughts of the heart. And we must not forget, in Scripture, the heart is the core of the person. It is the controlling center, we might say. The heart is the seat of the intellect, of the inclinations, which would include the old word affections, or a newer word emotions. The heart is the seat of the conscience and the will. It's why Solomon will say, Proverbs 4.23, keep your heart with all vigilance, or more literally, keep your heart with all keeping, for from it flow the springs of life. Everything comes from our hearts. In view of the 500 plus times the Bible speaks of the heart, J.C. Ryle famously says, the heart is the main thing in religion. And in this case, the fool's heart renounces religion. He puts out the natural light of conscience, of the knowledge of God. He puts out the consideration of God's providence and God's law. Now, of course, as Scripture will go on to show us, specifically in Romans chapter 1, this atheistic principle isn't a deliberation based on evidence. Because the evidence says that God is there and it's clearly seen. But knowing the truth, the fool suppresses the truth and unrighteousness. And then he goes on to give devotion to created things, often to himself. The fool here, therefore, does not intend for us someone with great intellectual limitations. The town idiot. A petulant child. An adult with the behavior of a court jester. That's how we use the word fool. But the fool here in Scripture is highlighting a person with a determined, or maybe we could even say aggressive, ungodliness. Now this determined ungodliness may not always look like avowed libertine conduct or an open profaneness. Further, this aggressive ungodliness isn't limited to the heathens out there. But what is clear whether the fool voices his internal commitments or not, the fool is driven by a God-rejecting or God-forgetting impulse. 
Now this secret deliberation of man's heart, because it's not known to us, stands as no basis for you and me to evaluate one another. I can tell you man is acting like a fool, but I really can't see the state of his heart. What we're getting in verse 1 is not our assessment. In fact, in the eyes of the world, and in a man's own eyes, he may not be a fool. But in the eyes of God, whose judgment is ultimate, that man is declared to be a fool. Because he's a man unrenewed and unreconciled to God, indeed who is hostile to God, and he's running towards his own destruction. And if there were a biblical poster boy for the fool, it's found in 1 Samuel 25 in a man named Nabal, who just so happens to mean, or it means, fool. You might want to think about how you name your children and what it communicates. This man's name was Fool. And what we see with Nabal, who refuses to help David, is a stubborn and selfish clinging to his own stuff. He's a man who has no sense of providence and is aggressive in his evil. Indeed, his wife Abigail will say to David regarding her husband Nabal, let not my Lord regard this worthless fellow, Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name and folly is with him. Now, brother, Nabal is a crucial example because he's a man within Israel. A man who, at least externally, would nod to the notion that there's a God of Israel. Yet in his thoughts, which determine his conduct, he says, God doesn't matter. God's law doesn't count. This is what we might call not a philosophical atheism, but a practical atheism. As the fool lives, even if there's a facade of religious commitment, as the fool lives, he gives no credence to God at all. His creed, which drives his thinking and living, regards God as irrelevant. But while the fool dismisses God, God doesn't dismiss him. For God sees to the depths of this man and will hold him accountable. Indeed, brethren, it's vital for us to remember that God isn't merely the judge over our actions. The Lord searches the heart. He tests the mind. He listens to these silent reflections going on with inside of us, the little bubbles that are popping up that you don't communicate to others. There is no escape from the Lord's probing gaze and His listening ear. It should make us stop and ask, what is the Lord seeing in me? Talk may be cheap and internal musings even more so. But what a man thinks in his heart, so he is. And that's unveiled here as the creed moves to corruption. Keep on reading in verse 1. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. There is none who does good. Now, note the movement in the psalm here from the singular fool to a plurality of people with corruption. They are corrupt. They do abominable deeds. What does this mean? It means fools are not Isolated individuals and endangered species. Fools are everywhere. There's a multitude of men doing evil. 
And the extent of that multitude will be revealed shortly, but there's already a hint in the echo with language from Genesis 6 with the word corruption. Now you may or may not remember what's going on in Genesis 6, but there the Lord is describing man's great wickedness on the earth which will lead to God's judgment at the flood. And as the Lord looks at the multitude of man in Genesis 6, we hear Him say, Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence, and God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Do you get the point? What's the key word? Corrupt. What's the same word here as in verse 1, describing a multitude of fools who have internal corruption and from a twisted character do wicked things. Indeed, much like the scene prior to the flood where God said, Genesis 6-5, that every inclination of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. Here, end of verse 1, we read, there is no one who does good. There may be actions that appear right, which are the right things to do, but the motives are all wrong. There is no heart for God, no seeking of God's glory. Without faith, the author of Hebrews says, it's impossible to please God, and these corrupt people have no living faith. Neither is there love to God, which is the fulfillment of the law. And on top of that, what is the first thing that Proverbs 6 tells us that God hates in those six things, even seven, that He hates? It's proud-looking eyes. He hates the proud. And when the fool, a frail creature of the dust, with minuscule knowledge and darkened understanding, acts as though he can dismiss the infinite, eternal, unchangeable God, it is a moment of astounding pride. And then every deed done in pride is an abomination. It's the opposite of all good and inherently offensive to God. And brethren, whether we look at godly kings like David and Hezekiah, who had their moments of pride, or evil kings like Saul and Ahab, pride is a pervasive problem in all the hearts of all men. In fact, David is beginning to show us that foolish thinking leading to abominable doing is a universal problem. It is a madness that attends to man generally, and then it's confirmed as we secondly see Yahweh's evaluation. Verses 2 and 3. Look at verse 2. Yahweh, the covenant God, looks down from heaven on the children of man, that is literally on the sons of Adam, to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. Man is there on earth acting like he's sovereign, like he is the real assessor and can declare all the facts concerning things metaphysical. No God or doesn't act like God matters. But the truth is, man is of the dust. Don't forget the connection between man and the ground, sexually reflective of the Hebrew language. Adam, Adam, and the ground, Adamah. There's a connection between man and the dust. You should never be boasting of yourself. You are dirt and nothing more. Man is earthy. 
man is perpetually weak. He has a limited perspective. But there's a heavenly being, a sovereign God, who looks down. And this verb to look down isn't a superficial glance. It's a word indicating careful scrutiny. A true watchfulness. It's used of Abimelech in Genesis 26 when he is looking out his window and seeing that while Isaac said Rebekah was his sister, that is not the way that you touch your sister. He sees it. He's studying the actions to discover the truth about the matter. Well, in like manner, Yahweh is giving great attention, not merely to one man at one moment, like Abimelech is doing as he watches Isaac. Yahweh is scrutinizing the sons of Adam, all of them, all the time. The tense of the verb here denotes continual action. This, brethren, speaks of the greatness of God. God is able to search out every heart at every moment to take in all of our thoughts. And as He observes all people to the very core of our being, He notes whether or not any of them have understanding. That is, whether any of them act literally with wisdom or prudence or good sense. Now, what, biblically speaking, is at the heart of wisdom? Who is it that shows good sense? Was those with the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. But as Yahweh surveys all men at all times in all situations, what does He find? He finds that there are none who seek after God. This determined ungodliness reveals itself in apathy toward God. Again, there could be some outward assent to the fact that there is a God, but in the heart, there is no desire for Him, no longing to know Him, no concern to imitate Him. Hence, the Lord conveys His estimation of man universally. Verse 3, they have all. Note the indisputable comprehensiveness of this evil. They have all. That's Jew and Gentile. Everyone coming from Adam. They have all turned aside. They have become corrupt together. There is none who does good, not even one. Do you see how it moves from the universal, all, to the particular, not even one? Now, throughout the history of man, mankind, there have been many declarations of man's fundamental character. There is the philosophical Platonic thought, that is from Plato, that man is capable of great good if he's simply informed of the good. If you know the good, you will do it. I hope you see how ridiculous that is. How much good do you know that you're not doing? And there's a whole educational philosophy built on that principle. If you just teach the people the stuff that they need to do, they'll do it. That has been educational philosophy in our land for the last 150 years or so. Where has it led us? That is foolish. And then there's the further Greek notion that man's will has the power at any moment to do good. Man can suddenly change. His will is free. That is, it's not constrained by evil. Which, of course, neglects Jesus' own teaching where He describes sin as slavery. And if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. That false idea about man being able to just suddenly turn over a new leaf has infiltrated theological discussions for millennia. 
and led to faulty notions about man and about salvation. There's also the thought arising out of the enlightenment that man is good at bottom. And with this optimism about man's nature, he is able to accomplish great good. Now that positivism seemed to be crushed by the outbreak of two world wars in the early 20th century. And yet, what view of man emerged from the rubble? Oh, it was this. While man is capable of great evil, he's still disposed to good. And you can see this all over the superhero genre. Superman emerging about the time of these great world wars. And what does Superman believe about man? He's basically good. Or you can listen to the country music of the day. I think Luke Bryan had a song in about 2017 with the title, Most People Are Good. You see, brethren, in the face of this history of self-assessment, where human depravity is possible but not inevitable, I want you to hear God's evaluation. Verse 3 is not my opinion. It's not David's opinion as king. Verse 3 is the infallible judgment of the covenant God as He looks down and scrutinizes hearts and says, they have all turned aside. All of them. They're all corrupt together. All of them. There's no one who does good. Not even one. W.S. Plummer, 19th century Presbyterian theologian and commentator, he writes this of the comments here from David. Man's depravity is a doctrine, not of human invention or of the sourness of mind. It's not the Presbyterian curmudgeons who came up with human depravity. The angry bearded Calvinists who developed a phrase that we all are supposed to memorize, total depravity. No. Human depravity, man's depravity, is the clear teaching of him who loves purity and has searched the earth with the scrutiny of omniscience and found all men, all men, very far gone in sin. And where we still entertain doubts, where we are still slow of heart to hear this, the language of verses 2 and 3 of this psalm is repeated nearly verbatim two more times in the Bible. In Psalm 53, and then again in Romans 3, as Paul spells out for us, the depth of man's corruption, both Jew and Gentile alike. Man loves to think high of himself and then dismiss God. But true biblical religion thinks highly of God and takes seriously God's devastating evaluation of the corruption of man's heart. No one, not even one, do you hear how particular that is? No one does good. Well, brethren, who's being addressed here? It's not just the folks out there. We are being addressed. Unless you start thinking, well, surely the psalmist is exaggerating. The language, not even one, rattles us into realism. Will you dare disagree with God? Will you tell Him who sees to your heart that He doesn't really know you? Will you make excuses? Will you offer up some exemptions? But I'm here listening to preaching on a Sunday night. 
Surely you're not talking about me. Yes. Yes, this text is talking about you and about me, even all mankind. And Paul will say, after quoting this text and a litany of other texts in Romans 3, 10-18, that by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. We have no righteousness in ourselves before God. Because man by nature doesn't regard God, inquire after God, or long to be conformed to God's purity. God made man upright, yes. But they and Adam, we have sought after many schemes. Ecclesiastes 7.29 Brethren, do we flatter ourselves that this isn't really true? Do we delude ourselves into thinking that we have some vestige of purity in our hearts? Do we fail to believe that we are poor, miserable sinners? The Lord our God is telling us the truth about ourselves. And a failure to listen to God Almighty is true madness. Because if you think you are well, you have no need of a physician. But what has Jesus come to be? A physician to the sick. It's not the righteous Jesus comes to call to repentance, but it's the sin-sick sinners. If we had righteousness, why would we need a Savior to come at all? Listen to the truth of your corruption and my corruption and lean not on your own understanding. And then third we see a shocking declaration. Verse 4. This psalm has been emphatic about the pervasive corruption of man, sparing no one. And it leads you to wonder, doesn't it? Will, Will sinful man simply be squashed? Surely that's what fools deserve, right? We have no fear of God, no pervasive thoughts of God, and we pursue evil. So that makes us all worthy of death, doesn't it? But suddenly, right after this universal condemnation of every single person among the sons of Adam, the psalm starts talking about, verse 4, my people, the Lord says. And in verse 5, the generation of the righteous for whom God is a refuge. Where did these people come from? How did anyone stop acting like a fool and start seeking God when God says no one seeks Him? There's no one calling on His name. What brought about this change? Well, the psalm doesn't stop to explain it. But thankfully, the Bible does. It's called grace. And it's truly shocking. We are corrupt sinners. We're doing abominable deeds. No one among us is guiltless, but God arrests us in our sin and makes us His own people. There's already been an allusion to Genesis 6 to the corruption pervasive as God was going to bring judgment on man in a flood. But amidst every man whose thoughts was only evil continually, there was a man singled out. We read Genesis 6-7 that the Lord would blot out man. He was grieved that He had made him. But, Genesis 6-8, Noah found favor. Noah found grace, literally, in the eyes of the Lord. What made Noah different? What made this man listen to God and build an ark in the middle of the land to be willing to do exactly what God said? It was grace, grace, and more grace. It is a but God moment. We have the same thing in Ephesians chapter 2 when Paul is reminding us what we were. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. 
You were defiant in your deeds following the course of this world. You were dominated by the devil underneath the power of the prince of the air. You were doomed. You were without hope, without God in this world. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, He made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Brethren, we come to worship tonight not boasting in our moral excellence. Look at us, we're so much better than everybody else. No, we come claiming that God has saved us. We say even as Christians, as Paul said, I am the chief of sinners. We say, Romans 7, there is nothing good in me that is in my flesh. We have no hope in ourselves. But He saved us not because of the deeds that we have done in righteousness. He saved us by His mercy. God has made us His own. God has opened our eyes. God gave us hearts to seek Him. God took out our hearts of stone, gave us a heart of flesh, cleansed us and put His Spirit in us so that we would desire Him. Are we amazed? Do you sing with Wesley? And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood. Died He for me who caused His pain. For me, to Him, to death pursued. Amazing love. How can it be that Thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Brethren, we stand as a church in a line of theological commitments that abase man and exalt God. We stand as a church in a heritage of Bible students who say, Grace is breathtaking. And we are saved by grace. And make sure you get the next word. Alone. Alone. Grace alone. And nothing will besmirch that grace more than boasting of man's goodness. Boasting of man's contribution. That nullifies the sweetness of the work of Jesus Christ. It tramples on the wonder of the Gospel. God's grace in Christ is shocking because man is so bad. And maybe if you're not shocked by grace, you haven't realized just how bad you really are. And what you need is the power of the Holy Spirit to awaken you to the depth of your own corruption. But what God has done is He's taken bad people who Romans 5 says were weak, ungodly, sinful enemies. And here we are, ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Former rebels made to be the people of God. Don't ever forget what we are by nature and what God has done. Fourth, we see the fool's estimation in verses 4-6. to six. Though there's suddenly this group amidst the mass of sinners called God's people, the Lord further explains now the enmity of the ungodly toward His people. And we might say, here are the fools being fools. For what do the unredeemed, those left in their sin, do? Well, verse 4, Have they no knowledge, the Lord asks, all these evildoers who eat up My people as they eat bread and do not call upon the Lord? Those left in the folly of their sin have no theoretical godlessness. They act with great evil against God's people. And just as bread is used to satisfy the appetites of the hungry, the evildoers regard God's people as mere things to be used for their satisfaction. They're not to be cared for or nourished. They can be devoured for whatever purpose. 
This, of course, is an image of cruelty, as though the evildoers were brute beasts with no thought of what they're destroying. They're slaves to their lusts and have no problem eating up the people of God. And we can track this devouring, this tormenting and murdering evil throughout all of the Scripture, both in and outside of Israel. We have Egypt and Amalek aiming to kill Israelites. And then we have men like King Saul and David's own son Absalom trying to kill David and those who stand with him. We can track large-scale devouring intentions from Pharaoh's infanticide to Queen Athaliah's murdering the sons of David, grandchildren in her own house, from Haman's plot against the Jews and Esther to Herod the Great asking, can you tell me please where the Bible says Messiah is to be born and then sending henchmen to kill babies in Bethlehem? And this kind of thing hasn't ceased. We hear of devouring acts of the wicked against believers in Nigeria, in Cameroon, North Korea, in India, and in Pakistan, and China. However, lest God's people feel forgotten, verse 4 is Yahweh's question to the wicked arising from His compassion. Now, Psalm 13 was how we feel under distress. How long, O Lord? But here, Yahweh is asking the wicked, have you no knowledge? Do you really believe you're going to get away with your brutality? Well, in the darkened mind of the wicked, alienating from God because of their willful hardness of heart, they've wrongly estimated the situation. They think God isn't paying attention. That God continues to play no real part in all of their decisions. But what will be the outcome of this pattern of thought leading to the practice of evil? The outcome will be terror. Look at verse 5. There they, the wicked, there they are in great terror. Why? For God is with the generation of the righteous. Verse 6, you would shame the plans of the poor, or better, the plans of the afflicted, but the Lord is His refuge. In other words, God is mocking the wicked, saying to them, you thought you could trample down these lowly God worshipers. What idiots for devoting themselves to the fantasy that there is a God. But you will find that I am the protector and defender of my people. These brutalizers, you see, have made a bad assumption. They've dismissed God and destroyed believers. But God will terrorize the evildoers. Ralph Davis writes here, Apparently, the wicked didn't see the sign that read, Beware of sheep. You touch God's people, and you will find yourself sooner or later having to deal with their God. That's a great comforting truth that Zechariah preaches to the returned exiles in Zechariah 2. They're attacked, they're maligned, and yet God tells them, I will be a wall of fire all around, and he who touches you touches the apple of my eye. God's people are precious to Him. And He will rise up to their defense. Ultimately, God is the great avenger. God Almighty who destroys the wicked. And a sight of Him will invoke terror. Verse 5 literally reads, there they are terribly terrified. That terror of the wicked, the terror they feel, will one day lead to them calling on the rocks to fall upon them and hide them from the wrath of the Lamb, but there will be no escape for them. But brethren, this is intended to be a comfort for us. The afflictors are coming to afflict God's people. 
And the word is saying, I will repay with affliction those who afflict you. And I will bring relief to the saints of God. I will bring you safety. We may be afflicted. In the eyes of the world, we may be put to shame. But the same God who bore His mighty right arm and threw Pharaoh and his chariots into the sea, He will pursue our enemies into outer darkness. And we will be free in the days to come. The psalmist is saying, look at how bad man is, and yet, don't despair. Because God has taken a people to Himself. Don't start having thoughts that the the wicked who are pervasive are going to get the upper hand. Don't start drifting into unbelieving thoughts yourself and think, God isn't there. God isn't paying attention. No, the Lord will keep His own and the wicked will not stand in the judgment. And in view of this, we finally see Yahweh's emancipation. Just a brief note here, verse 7. With hope now lifting his head to God and not just seeing the multitude of evil, David prays, verse 7, Oh, that salvation for Israel would come out of Zion. There's a longing here that's rooted not in the trite, it'll all work out in the end, the thinking of Pollyanna types. It's a longing rooted in God's pattern and promise. What has God shown Himself to do for His people? He delivered Noah from the flood. He rescued Abraham from enemies all about. He raised up Joseph from the ash heap. He ransomed Israel from Egypt. And then in David's own days, God has given salvation to Israel. He's set them free from the attacks of the Philistines and the Edomites. And even when Saul came after David, God intervened. These historical deliverances are part and parcel to what God does. He saves His people. Thus Hannah will write in her her glorious psalm in 1 Samuel 2, God will guard the feet of His faithful ones and the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. She says, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them Yahweh will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to His King and exalt the horn of His anointed. Brethren, these are promises. And thereby knowing that the judge of all the earth will do right, knowing the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, David can look down the road with confidence. He says, not if, but when. Verse 7 when the Lord restores the fortunes of His people, let Jacob rejoice, let Israel be glad. What's he telling us? Things are hard now. Evil men are everywhere. But there is a final salvation coming. The groaning of our present existence will be followed by freedom, by full emancipation given by the Lord. We will enter into a liberty Liberty from the very presence of evil. And in that day, there will be joy. But of course, you understand the sense of the whole psalm is telling you, you can have joy now, knowing that this word of the Lord will not fail. That He sees us, He pities us, He sustains us, and His deliverance will come. So do we hope in the Lord? How much more should we hope when we live on this side of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we have seen Jesus crush the devil. So brethren, rejoice now. 
in view of the grace given you when you deserve destruction. Rejoice now and nourish the hope of final rescue. May we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God because our God will not fail His people. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank You that Your Word teaches us who we are and Your Word shows us Your amazing grace. Father in heaven, we pray that we would see that grace coming to rescue ruined sinners and we would never entertain high thoughts of ourselves. We pray that we would perpetually see that we are poor, miserable sinners and yet You have brought us in to Your banqueting house. Lord, may we rejoice that we have been called into fellowship with Christ and may we rejoice that King Jesus shall defeat all His and our enemies. And we pray this in the name of Jesus our Savior. Amen.